this particular chapter of the Confession of Faith, listing these scripture references, and that has been the course of study that we've been undertaking together. We're in chapter 28 now, dealing with baptism, and of course, each of these chapters is successive. It builds on those before. I encourage you, if you haven't, to um, certainly read through the Confession of Faith, looking at these scripture references, and our Sunday school lessons together uh, have been recorded, and hopefully those would be of some help to you as well if you've missed any of those. But we come now to the fourth paragraph in this chapter on baptism. And the third uh, dealt with the mode of that baptism, uh, what is the biblical um, manner in which baptism is to be performed. And this fourth paragraph then addresses uh, who is to receive uh, the sacrament of baptism. And we began last week looking with this first uh, statement, not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, that uh, hopefully goes without contest, but there is no um, predicting the lies that the evil one can foist upon the church and her weakness. So it is good to have this statement and these scripture references that certainly those who profess faith in Christ, it is his will that they be baptized. But this second half of the paragraph uh, adds something that is not as commonly understood, and that is this matter of household baptism or infant baptism. It's been known by several names. But notice the phrase of the confession, and then we'll continue looking at these scripture references. But also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Now, last week, we began looking with Genesis 17, and um, giving our attention to that passage, we, we looked at the, par- the uh, institution of circumcision as the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament in God's renewal of the covenant here with Abraham. And we saw that there were promises that accompanied a command. The promises were that God would be a God to Abraham and his children after him, that he would uh, call Abraham to command his household to follow the Lord and to lead them in that path, to look for God's blessing upon that. And certainly it would require in each member of that household the gift of faith to receive and respond to this, that there wasn't anything just automatic, Uh, There wasn't such a thing as just a bloodline heritage that would bypass personal faith in the Old Testament. Uh, We saw that misconception played out several times as we read the Old Testament. And we see it corrected um, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament with such statements as the Lord has made in his prophet uh, Malachi about how Jacob he had loved, but Esau he had hated. This was a a child of the covenant that he's speaking about. Or Paul in Romans 10, other passages, um, explaining that not all Israel is of Israel. Or Moses in Deuteronomy calling the nation of Israel to circumcise then the foreskin of their hearts. That there was a spiritual reality that had to be accomplished by God's hand in the individual lives of this covenant community or else the sign of the covenant 
would be rejected by their lives and they would reject the covenant blessings for themselves. And so Genesis 17, that that gives us some idea of the Old Testament covenant of grace and how the sign of the covenant functioned within that by marking out households and God calling uh, these families to follow after him. Well, that's all well and good, but the next passage is what really shows us the connection to our topic of discussion. What does that mean to us here in the New Testament? What does it mean in respect to baptism? And we looked at Galatians 3, and we saw, again, that Abraham is not just an Old Testament figure, but that he and we New Testament believers have this in common, that we were all saved in the same way, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham, believing those promises, they were in seminal form in the Old Testament. They certainly hadn't been brought to fruition as they would be, but nonetheless, in John 8, Jesus would say of Abraham that he looked to see my day, and he saw it and was glad that Abraham had that Old Testament believer's understanding of the coming Messiah and put his faith and trust in him. And as such, Paul argues in Galatians 3 that Abraham is the father of all who believe, um, which gives even Gentile believers an interest in the same promises that God gave to Abraham. They're, They're not lessened in the New Testament, but they're continued. In fact, as we made reference last week, it is in the Lord Jesus Christ himself that all the promises of God are yes and amen, as we read in 1 Corinthians. And so we pick back up with the next of these passages in our list of footnotes, uh, the, the footnote references here, and that would be Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Now here again we're coming to a passage which shows us the close connection between circumcision and baptism, that these are the Old and New Testament expressions of the same uh, basic symbol, um, that they have a parallel to one another. In verse 11, um, we're reading about the Lord Jesus Christ. In him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so again, what do we see in, this, in these verses? We see that even for the New Testament believer, there is this continued force and significance and place of circumcision. It's, no, it's not the outward sign of circumcision any longer. Notice there it's a, it's a circumcision made without hands. But it is that inward spiritual work of God to cut away the old sinful self and to bring forth new life, it's in the Lord Jesus that that's accomplished. So we have the New Testament continuing the spiritual truth and reality of circumcision by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the hearts of those who believe in him. 
And notice how without any transition, the passage goes on to say basically the the same point again or develop this thought in verse 12, now with a reference to baptism, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And so we, we have not only had the inner work of the Holy Spirit to cut away the old sinful nature such that we've experienced the spiritual reality of circumcision, but we also have in this same sense been cleansed and made new and washed clean. Um, we've, been, we've seen the old sinful man joined to Christ nailed to the cross with him, buried with him, put to death in him, and raised to newness of life. So the old man dying and being put off, and the new man being brought forth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the same, the same spiritual truth being pictured under both of these terms. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so what we see from this passage is, taken together with these others, that baptism is not of some different order from circumcision, that it represented a very similar, if not the very same, work of God in the spiritual lives of his people to put to death the old sinful nature, to, to wash us clean from it, to join us to Christ, that in new, newness of life then we might walk through faith in the powerful working of God. Notice in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So we've, we've tr- switched back to this uh, language of circumcision now. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so... Both circumcision and baptism are outward signs that point to and represent an inward spiritual work that Jesus alone can accomplish. It's a circumcision not made with hands. And in the same way, it's it's a baptism, as Peter would say, it's not the, the water that cleanses the outward dirt from the flesh, but we're talking about that spiritual cleansing that Christ alone can do by the work of his spirit. And so they both um, stand for and point to uh, this same work. All right, let's look then to Acts chapter 2. And we, we see this in the, again in this instance of Peter's sermon there on the day of Pentecost. Um, they are now standing in the New Testament. Christ has come and lived and died and been raised from the dead, and now in force is this new covenant symbol, this covenant sign, the sign of baptism, which Christ has appointed as the sacrament for the New Testament church of admission 
to the covenant people of God of recognition of that spiritual work that God must do within each of us that we might be saved. This is what he had commanded in the Great Commission, uh, that there was to be baptism of these who were made disciples of the nations. And so at the conclusion of Peter's sermon, what, what does he say to these who have, up to this point, rejected the mercy of God and committed great sin against him? In verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, just bear in mind, this is the, the very conclusion, the very culmination of the whole chapter of the Old Testament history, which was marked by successive rejections of the mercy of God and increasing periods of judgment, exile, and so forth. You see this as you read through the prophets especially. And now, as Jesus would teach in that parable in his earthly ministry, uh, the Old Testament period is, is compared to the owner of the vineyard sending the servants to collect from those that he had given the vineyard to. And what did they do? They reject those servants. They cast them out. They beat them. What's the conclusion? The final step of that um, saga, it is for the master to send his son. Surely they'll respect him. Well, of course, what do those wicked tenants do? They say, well, here's the son. He's the heir. We'll kill him and have this for ourselves. And that's what happened <clears throat> in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. The, God's own people had, in a final act, rejected God's purpose of redemption for them in the sending of his son. <clears throat> There's nothing else you could do to more definitively put yourself outside of the covenant mercy of God than to kill the son that he sent to call you back to himself. And so that's what they realize they've done. They realize that Jesus was God's son. That's what Peter's been preaching and pressing upon them. And they're cut to the heart in verse 37. I mean, what hope can there be? What can we do? We're the tenants that have killed the son now. And so that's the context then for verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's the amazing grace of God that there is another page to turn to after these tenants have killed the son. Jesus ends the parable there because he's, preaching to these who were standing in that place, conspiring that very thing, calling them to repentance, bring conviction upon them. They harden their hearts. They actually do it. But nonetheless, here's, here is the apostle of the Lord Jesus, the one sent by him, Peter, saying, there's still an offer of mercy. You must repent. And notice he calls them to be baptized. Uh, you need to put upon yourself the mark of God's covenant people now, um, you had rejected that covenant in its very person in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he will receive you back. Repent and be baptized. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice verse 39, and this is 
where our reference really comes in in thinking about what has just happened with respect to who is to receive the sign of the covenant. Um, notice how this Old Testament concept of God's covenant mercy, it's not contracted, it's not withdrawn, it's not more limited than it was, but basically the same idea as when God had proclaimed that renewal of his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. Here we see the same language in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so we have this, this very familiar sounding language that we've seen through the Old Testament with Abraham and then those who followed him. God is still offering his covenant mercy to households. Um, he calls these people to recognize God's covenant mercy is for them and for their children. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And again, this helps us understand Abraham's standing in place, what significance his life and God's covenant dealings with him have for us, that it carries over from the Old Testament to the New Testament when looking at Abraham's life of faith in the Messiah. And this has significance for how we view not only the place and significance of circumcision, uh, but also of baptism and of how we would understand our relationship to the promises God gave to Abraham. And so in Romans chapter 4, in, uh, he, he's speaking about the blessing of justification by faith alone, that it's our faith in Christ that causes God to look to Christ and his righteousness and pronounce us justified. That is the sole instrument by which we are declared righteous in God's sight. In verse 5 of Romans 4, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So he's looking back to an Old Testament passage and he's pre presenting this question in, in that Old Testament context. So when you read David's words and we read about this blessing of God not counting our sins against us, but rather dealing with us on the basis of another's righteousness, which covers our sins. That's the question. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And he looks then back to Abraham to answer this question. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. We see that clearly when we read Genesis. You know, Genesis 17 is many years after Genesis 12 
and even Genesis 15. It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now notice there that um, that pronoun in verse 12, uh, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul is writing to the Romans here. He's certainly not writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a very eclectic group. You can read to the end of the letter and, and see those names and have some indication of just how broad the church there in Rome was in terms of its demographic. But Paul includes them all, all of his readers in this letter, in this, in this reference to our father Abraham. What is he saying? He's saying that, that they stand in that group of the children of Abraham. And therefore, they have an interest as the children of Abraham in the promises that God first gave to Abraham and said would belong to him and his children after him. So us as New Testament believers may be counted truly as children of Father Abraham. He's the father of those who believe. And we can recognize then that that blessing of God's covenant dealings with households is something that still belongs to us. It's not something that's been deleted or withdrawn. No, Paul draws a direct line from the New Testament Roman believers back to Abraham, the father of those who believe, and he says we are the heirs of Abraham. We're the the children of our father Abraham. Uh, Notice in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. We could look uh, at that in terms of Genesis 17 and also go over to Galatians 3 again. But this reference to the promise being given to Abraham and to his offspring, who did the promise belong to then? It belonged to Abraham, and it belonged to his offspring. And that, that term is deliberately um, inclusive of all those who would be the children of Abraham, truly the children, as we read, not just the children that were circumcised, but those who would walk in the footsteps of the faith. Those are the offspring of Abraham. But Galatians 3 helps us understand that even more clearly by pointing that the seed or the offspring that Moses wrote about in Galatians 17 that Abraham heard about in the promise of God um, was personal. 
He says he doesn't refer to seeds, but to seed, that is not to many, but to one. And he points to the Lord Jesus Christ as the seed of Abraham, who would truly own as the heir all of these blessings. And so nothing has been lost. All has been conveyed to the Lord Jesus And all is therefore ours who believe in Jesus. We are the heirs of Abraham, and he is our father. So again, it would require a very clear, explicit statement in the scriptures at this point uh, to correct this uh, for us to not understand and, and see that particular aspect of the blessings and the promises to Abraham being continued. And that's not what we see. When Peter is addressing his audience there in Acts 2, they are from an Old Testament background. They're they're there in Jerusalem. And rather than saying, now this is a very radical, sharp left turn in terms of how things have always been, Peter reiterates that household nature of the covenant mercy of God, the promises for you and your children after you. We also see this expressed in the practice of the New Testament. And let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this has reference not only to the general concept, but the specific language of our confession that the infants of one or both believing parents is specifically drawn from this passage in 1 Corinthians 7. He's speaking with respect to marriage, um, when a, a husband and a wife should continue on in marriage covenant, and those few exceptions where the marriage covenant has been ended in God's sight. And notice here in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7, to the marriage I give this charge, not I but the Lord. That is, Paul is here going to recount something that the Lord had previously explicitly taught in Matthew 19, etc. Uh, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That is, in in every case except those few exceptions, what does Jesus teach in Matthew 19? That the, the covenant bonds persist. And if you have a case that doesn't rise to the level of what God would recognize as a breaking and a severing of those covenant bonds of marriage... They, they persist. Paul here then gives his, his reiteration of this, what the Lord has says, that even if there's a case of separation for one cause or another, if, if God would not hold that marriage bond dissolved, then you have to remain unmarried. You have to consider yourselves still married and be pursuing reconciliation, if at all possible. You should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. The husband should not divorce his wife. So this same teaching of the strength of the covenant bonds of marriage. Now in verse 12, this is where Paul begins to deal with a situation that Jesus had not addressed. Now, what's unique about this? 
Jesus' teaching on marriage in Matthew 19 was addressed to the covenant community of God's people. That's who he was addressing. He was addressing the case of the scribes and Pharisees bringing in all of their exception clauses and um, wedging in huge um, scenarios that were not envisioned between within the covenant community of God's people. That is to say between a, a believing husband and a believing wife or at least professing believers there in the Old Testament community of God's people. Now Paul is, is encountering a new situation in this sense that there were in those days, there are still to this day, uh, with the offer of the gospel to the nations you would have some occasions where one or the other of the two spouses would express faith in Jesus Christ, would respond to the gospel, but the other would not. And that created some tensions and some scenarios that Paul is now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit going to address. And so that's, that's the context. That's what is different in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord... He's not saying, now I'm not filled with the Spirit of the Lord. This isn't the inscripturated Word of God now. No, what he's, what he's identifying is this is a new situation. This is something that the Lord hadn't previously addressed. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. In other words, it, it isn't sufficient to dissolve the marriage covenant if one or the other of the spouses come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's not, even though that's a very um, tense situation, there, there are certainly tensions that arise if, if one has committed their life to Christ and the other has not. But if they consent to, to live with the believing spouse, he should not divorce her. In verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, again, in verse 14, we don't want to misunderstand what is being spoken of. It's not to say that one person's faith can count for two people that will both go to heaven because I'm a believer, for example. No, they, they must experience the work of God in their heart. They must come to faith in Christ. We see that down in verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So we're not talking about one believer being sufficient to carry the whole household on a single person's faith into the grace of God. But there is something short of that that is significant in God's sight. He now views that household differently because there is a believer in it. That's the sense in which this term holy is being used. Uh, there is uh, something that they have been marked out differently than they were. They've been set apart, that sense of the term holy. It, it's reminiscent of the old Levitical laws about who might eat of the priest's food in their household. And you can go back and read those instructions, but 
Various relatives of the priest could eat. An unmarried daughter could eat. Uh, a daughter who had gone and married someone who was not a Levite was not to eat. But then if her husband died and she came back to live with her father, she might eat. And so they were being treated and permitted, uh, given some, some provision by God's hand, uh, by virtue of their relationship with one who was in the service of the Lord, that was certainly in an outward sense with respect to physical food in the Old Testament economy. But here in the New Testament, we have something similar in this view of how uh, one believing spouse does cause God to view differently an unbelieving spouse. Uh, that, such that he says they are made holy. Notice the conclusion then. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. God has set them apart also for his special favor uh, to, again, receive the blessings of being counted a covenant household in his sight where they should be receiving the, the expression of the gospel and seeing the gospel lived before them and being in the presence of the work of the Holy Spirit in this parent who is a believer in Jesus, all of which, by God's grace, would contribute to them, hopefully, receiving and believing the gospel themselves. And God would count them as a covenant household and um, their children are to be marked out as such. And that's the point then of the reference in our confession of faith to this. It's a, it's a good passage that shows us that there is a significance and an importance, an impact, if you will, upon your household, your family, simply by virtue of one of the two parents becoming a believer in Jesus. As Paul writes here, it makes your whole household marked out in this sense, made holy, marked as holy, uh, recognized as holy. We could go back to the Old Testament and see what that meant in God's eyes. And we would see passages such as in Ezekiel 16, where the Lord would reproach his people for how they treated his children. He counted them as, as belonging to him in a special way and under his special protection. And their sin was aggravated by the fact that uh, it would be a sin to do what they were doing to any child. But God says, these were my children that you took and sacrificed to your pagan gods. Paul goes on to uh, address then if, if the unbelieving partner in verse 15 separates, let it be so. In other words, if, if the unbelieving spouse in this scenario says, you're not the person I married anymore and I'm not willing to stay with you, then Paul says, well, then let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That is, God does release from the bonds of that covenant if an unbeliever will refuse to continue in the marriage. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, certainly that gives us that caution and that qualification of what holiness was a reference to earlier. 
But notice the encouragement that's implicit in that as well. That if an unbelieving spouse is willing to stay, well, what should the believing spouse have as an expectation and be working and praying toward? Seeing God save this unbelieving spouse that's willing to remain. Now, again, there's no absolute guarantee of this. Paul reiterates that. But there is hope for it. And that is something they should be looking for and praying for on the basis of God's covenant mercies. Now, we've ran out of time again um, a second week in the same paragraph, so we're going to have to do something next week. Uh, We still have, they really hit us with the scripture references here, which is a good thing. But we'll pick up with Matthew 28 again. And we have uh, a couple more references in the Gospels to how Jesus viewed children in connection to this new kingdom that he was coming to establish. And then also the practice in the life of God's people as the Gospel was preached and people responded by faith. Well, what was, what was the next step with respect to baptism? And we'll look at two or three examples of that as well. Hopefully we'll be able to continue on press past that next week. But we've reached the time where we need to close with prayer this morning. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that it is perfect and true. It has been tried and uh, never found wanting or untrue. Lord, by your own promise, not a word will ever fall to the ground of your promises, but all will be fulfilled And we give thanks to you for the encouragement from your word as we've seen again this morning how the great promises that you gave to Abraham have not been withdrawn but rather continued through the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of all who are believers in him. We have the same reason to expect your grace and mercy upon our households and and to work with hope and faith in that promise in sharing the gospel and teaching the gospel uh, to our children and praying for our spouse, expectant of your saving grace to come and be at work in their lives. Uh, Lord, please remind us that this is not uh, something that is of absolute certainty. Uh, Lord, we depend upon your grace. We depend upon your sovereign pleasure. And there are those cases which break our hearts where a a member of a household or even a spouse will reject uh, the gospel truth of the covenant uh, which they stood to inherit but were not granted faith. Lord, we pray that you would keep such far from us and may our hearts be soft and tender toward you. May our children respond with faith to the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. And we pray that you would bless as we gather with the rest of your people in this place, as your children gather around this world, uh, in many cases in grave danger, to worship you. We pray that your spirit would come and be with us, that you would bless us greatly, that you would put your hand of protection upon your people, especially in uh, the countries in Africa where where there is such uh, violence being expressed against your people. Uh, Lord, other parts of the world as well. But we pray that you would uh, please give us joy and thanksgiving that we can freely gather to worship you together at this time. Uh, Please bless us with your spirit. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.